Welcome to Cardinals Day. Um, I've been told that we're letting people in, even if they're in their Cubs jerseys or Red Sox. You just have to sit in the balcony. Uh, it's a true testament to the fact that the gospel that unites us is stronger even than the, the sports allegiances that divide us. My name is Will Duvall. I'm the lead pastor here at West Hills. So good to have you with us. Um, this morning, we are in week three of our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, entitled Rooted. And this morning is going to be a part two uh, follow-up sermon of a study specifically on the Lord's Supper that we started last week from Mark chapter 14. Uh, now, if you are completely new to the Christian faith, um, first of all, again, we're so glad you're here with us. We pray you'll be blessed by your time with us. We are blessed to have you uh, but maybe this language of the Lord's Supper or communion sounds totally foreign to you. All this stuff about bread and wine, or is it cra crackers and grape juice? I, I, it's, it's all kind of swirling. You don't know what it's all about. Let me just assure you this morning that you're in good company. None of us here totally understands the depths and the richness of what we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But that shouldn't stop us from trying to understand it more deeply. And so that's what we're going to try and do this morning. We want to be more intentional in our worship. And that's actually probably the easiest way to summarize uh, what the Lord's Supper is for us. It's, it's, the purpose of this table is to draw our focused attention back time and time again to the cross so that we can worship Jesus more wholeheartedly as we remember the lengths and the depths to which he went to save us. And so I want to begin by, by quickly recapping the first three bullet points um, that we, we started last week. Mark 14 teaches us six things we said about communion, uh, and we got halfway through those. So last week we covered the first three. We said the Lord's Supper is, number one, supernatural. It's supernatural because even the way that Jesus orchestrated the events of verses 12 through 16 in, in, in Mark 14 was supernatural to avoid Judas's plotting long enough to institute this first communion meal. And moreover, God supernaturally intervened in history to allow actually for two final Passover observances to prove that Jesus was not only the Lord of the Passover, but he was the Passover lamb as well. And by the way, I didn't mention this last week, but did you notice what food is conspicuously absent from Mark chapter 14? You notice that? The lamb. The single most important food in the Passover meal isn't mentioned in any of the four gospel accounts of this meal. Why didn't Jesus use the lamb to symbolize his body slain for us? It wasn't just because crackers are easier to fix every week than having to cook a lamb every week. Why on Thursday morning when Jesus should have been at the temple taking his lamb to be slaughtered for supper that night, why is Jesus still outside the city in Bethany in verse 13? I can't prove this, but I think that this was a vegetarian last supper. I imagine the disciples whispering to each other, did he forget the lamb? Like, was that my, it wasn't my job, was it your job? 
But I think Jesus was trying to reinforce the point for them that he is now our new Passover lamb. And finally, unless communion be merely a historical remembrance of God's action in the past, we saw last week that God actually wants to do something supernatural in the present, in our own hearts, as we take this meal. Not physically, not in our bodies. This meal isn't supernatural in a physical sense. The elements don't literally become Christ's body and blood. But Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, that the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So too, in a spiritual way, we participate in the death and the resurrection of Jesus at this table, spiritually. We call it communion because we commune with Jesus in this meal. It's supernatural because Jesus is supernatural. And it's his meal. It's the Lord's Supper. Number two, we saw last week, it's communal. The Lord's Supper is primarily about communion with Jesus, but it's also about communion with one another. Paul says, because there is one bread, we who were many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This meal bonds Christians together in unity and fellowship like nothing else can. Think of all the other identity markers of inclusion, of belonging that you've experienced in other communities throughout your life. Your Costco card, your Cardinals jersey, your sorority handshake, your alma mater's fight song, the Pledge of Allegiance, all these other identity markers pale in comparison to this one this table, because your new identity in Christ is now the most significant, foundational, fundamental part of your identity as a whole, even more than a Delta Gamma, even more than a Cardinals fan, even more than an Auburn Tiger. Sorry, Emily, it's too too soon. Even more than an American, even more than a Duval, than a Scott, than a Keene, even more than all those things. You are a child of God. At this table, Jesus reminds us that he's knit us together as a spiritual family, and our spiritual DNA runs deeper even than our blood. And finally, number three, we saw that the Lord's Supper was confessional. The disciples were sorrowful as they realized that one of them would soon betray Jesus. Is it I, Lord? Is it I, they ask. And so too, when we observe the Lord's Supper, we confess not only the hypothetical possibility that we are capable of betraying Jesus, but the spiritual reality that we have all already done that hundreds, thousands of times. We've all stabbed him in the back already. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as we are reminded at this table of our need for a Savior, we should experience A mixture of joy, yes, that Jesus has actually saved us, praise God, but also of sorrow that our sin made it necessary for him to die in order to do so. Sorrow and joy flow mingled down. Amen? So that's only the half of it. That's halfway through. So would you stand with me as you're able for respect of the reading of God's word from Mark chapter 14, 
got the words on the screen for you from the ESV. We'll pick up the story in verses 17 through 25. And when it was evening, Jesus came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And we give, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink it again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its supernatural inspiration, that we can trust it, that we can go to it as our source of, of authority, sure foundation on which to base our faith. Father, we pray now that just as you supernaturally instituted this meal 2,000 years ago and you supernaturally inspired your word so long ago too, would you now come and be with us, Holy Spirit, supernaturally bless the reading and interpretation, exposition and application of your word. Father, we need to hear from you this morning, not me. May I decrease so that you may increase and be blessed. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the fourth attribute of the Lord's Supper that we see here in Mark 14 is that it is a precept of God. It's a precept of God. Another synonym for precept is the word ordinance. It's a key word that we use with the Lord's Supper. I had to use precept because it works with my alliteration this morning. But an ordinance is an authoritative rule or law, a decree or command, a public injunction or regulation, something believed to have been ordained as by a deity. And all three of those definitions are true of the Lord's Supper. It is precisely because the Lord's Supper has been ordained by Jesus. He said, do this in remembrance of me. It is therefore an authoritative command for his people, and it serves as a public precept to be observed regularly by the church. But even more than God's ordaining this meal of remembrance, what I want us to see this morning is that God ordained the events by which we are reminded at this table. Let me say that again. God ordained this meal for the church to remember Christ's sacrifice for us. And yet, we hear in Mark 14 that God also ordained Christ's suffering and death itself, the events that are recalled as we celebrate 
at this table. Jesus says in verse 21, the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. This is huge, friends. The cross was not an oversight on God's part. God did not fall asleep for a moment. The chief priests and scribes, Judas and the Roman soldiers, they all had a hand in it, sure. Jesus says, woe to the man by whom Jesus I am betrayed. God's sovereignty does not negate human agency. And yet, Jesus himself tells us here that far from being a mistake, an accident, a surprise, this awful thing that is about to happen to me, it was actually ordained by God. It was written by God. This plan of salvation was God's plan long before it was ever Judas's plan. It was written of him in God's word. Let's look at it in the Old Testament. This is prophesied centuries earlier. Psalm 41.9, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who I ate bread with, has lifted his heel against me. That's Jesus, his betrayal by Judas. On the lips of David a thousand years before, Zechariah 13, 7, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus quotes this prophecy to his disciples in Mark 14 to say, you will abandon me. But it was prophesied 600 years earlier. Isaiah 53, 3 through 5, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by who? By God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. That's Jesus, friends. That's Jesus 600 years, 800 years, 1,000 years in the case of David's psalm. Before his death, God had written the plan in his word. We hear that confirmed in the New Testament as well. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And when God writes it in His holy, unbreakable Word, it's as good as done. It is a binding precept. That's why Isaiah wrote in the past tense. Isaiah said he was pierced. He was crushed because from God's perspective, Christ's sacrifice was as good as done eight centuries before Jesus is even born. Jesus himself says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed. Mark 8, 31. He must suffer. He must be rejected. Must be, be killed. It's not just that God brings redemption in spite of the cross. God himself ordained the cross as the very means by which he chose to accomplish our salvation. Do you believe that this morning, friends? Can you believe that? that is, I, I know that is a difficult truth to swallow. But man, is it an important one. It is so important because if you can believe that God would not only allow, but actually ordain Jesus' crucifixion, that God always has a plan and no amount of human sin or scheming can derail God's plan, then I ask you, what greater suffering could you or I face that could ever fall outside of God's providence? If God has proven 
that he is wise enough, that he is powerful enough, that he is good enough, redemptive enough to orchestrate the greatest victory of all time through the greatest injustice and horror of all time, the cross, then what awful thing could you or I ever face that would fall outside of God's all-seeing, all-knowing, sovereign, good will for our lives? God promises us, Romans 8, 28, he's working it together for good. Not just in spite of your suffering, but precisely because of it. It's through it. Your suffering is the very mechanism that God wants to use to shape and conform you more into the likeness of Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith can be refined. See, if God's purpose for you in this life was your temporal earthly comfort, then God is a failure. Could God better insulate you from your pain and your trials and your suffering? Absolutely. But that is not his goal. God's purpose for our lives is not our comfort. It's our sanctification. The building and refining of our faith. He wants to burn away the dross of our doubt, our insecurity, our self-sufficiency to make us more like Jesus as we are forced to lean on him more in our weakness. And this meal is a visible reminder that we do not serve a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. Jesus suffered the very worst of it, friends. He suffered the worst of it for us. And God actually ordained it for him and for our sake. And God redeemed every bit of it. So we can take heart this morning, brothers and sisters. If God could ordain and redeem the cross, God can and will ordain and redeem whatever you face this morning. He is still at work, he is still sovereign, and he's still good. Amen? Number five, we see that the Lord's Supper is a picture of grace. This is a picture of grace. I want to walk with you through verses 22 through 24, and I want to show you why I think Jesus' words here that he uses to institute this meal actually retell the story of the gospel for us. Why every time I stand up here on Sunday morning and I recite these words of institution before we take communion together, why our minds and our hearts ought to be flooded with images of what Jesus has done for us. Consider his words. Verse 22, he says, And as they were eating, now, the disciples are less than 24 hours away from Jesus' crucifixion. If they had any sense of what is going on, they would be too sick to their stomachs to be able to eat. But they're just carrying on. Life as usual. Not a care in the world, not a clue about what's about to happen. Friends, that's us. That's a picture of us. Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners. Just carrying on. Life as usual. In our sin pursuing our own way, self-centeredness, 
And into that picture, into that situation, God stepped in. How? The next part of the verse, verse 22, as they're eating, he took bread. Jesus took something physical. He took a body. Christmas, the incarnation. Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And having taken a body and voluntarily left the perfections of heaven to come down and become a man, the perfect God-man mediator that we needed, 100% God, 100% man, the full embodiment of divinity, the full embodiment of humanity, necessary to actually pay our debt that we owed God. But before he does that, what does he do next? He took bread and he blessed it, verse 22. And this is so important. And this is a part of the gospel that we sometimes forget. If all Jesus had to do was die and rise from the grave, God could have had him killed as a baby and saved everyone a lot of time and pain. Do you understand that? Remember, King Herod was chasing Jesus all over the Judea, trying to kill him. But that wasn't God's plan. And for 14 of Mark's 16 chapters, we're going to hear that before Jesus' death and resurrection, he lived to be our Lord. To be a Christian, we say, you have to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's not a redundancy. Those two are not synonyms. Yes, Jesus died for your sins. Praise God. That's the gospel. But the full gospel is even better than that. The full gospel is that he also lived to be our Lord That means two things. He did two things. One, he perfectly fulfilled the law of God that you and I could not. And two, he showed us that we could not. Jesus lived a life that we couldn't live as a mirror for us to hold our lives up against and say, oh man, if if that's what it means to fulfill the law, if that's what it means to live the kind of life that God desires, demands, deserves from me, then I'm in trouble. I'm in big trouble. I I don't know how to live life as I ought. And even if I did, I'm incapable of doing it. I'm incapable of it. I need that guy to live the life that I can't to satisfy God's righteous demands for me on my behalf to willingly trade his righteousness for my unrighteousness. And in return, I'll give the only thing I can give in return, my life back for him. Romans 12, 1, as a holy and pleasing sacrifice in response to the eternal life that he is offering me. And friends, that is such a blessing. We say he, he, he took bread and he blessed it. It's a blessing because Jesus is good, because he's perfect. He came that we might have life to the fullest, dying to yourself to live For Jesus instead is the greatest blessing you could ever receive because he knows how to actually bring you eternal joy, peace, hope, purpose, all the things you've lived your whole life trying to pursue on your own and failing. He can give them to you. He can give them to you in an eternal, lasting way this morning. That transcendent, that transcends the fleeting pleasures and circumstances of this world. And this is the paradox of faith. That in losing our lives for Jesus' sake, he tells us we'll actually find them. Man, what a blessing. What a blessing. 
And so he lived to bless us. And then what? Verse 22. He took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it. He broke it. Jesus broke it. No one took Jesus' life, John 10, 18. He laid it down of his own accord. At any moment, Jesus reminds us he could have called down a legion of angels. But that wasn't the plan. It was God's will that his son be broken for us. And I'm not going to try and unpack for us this morning all that it means to say that Jesus was broken for us. We couldn't explore the depths of it even if we tried, but I want to simply invite you back for our Good Friday service here in a couple weeks. That service is going to be entirely devoted to exploring, reflecting on the depths to which Jesus was broken for us. And having broke it, what does Jesus do next? took bread, he blessed it, he broke it. Verse 22, he gave it to them. He gave it to them. Friends, there is an offer for us on this table this morning, literally. And the literal bread, crackers that are going to be offered to you, given to you, symbolizes an even more real spiritual offer that is available to you this morning. Jesus wants to give himself to you. He's already given his body for you on the cross. That's done. It's finished, paid in full. But his sacrifice for you isn't applied to you until what? Until you do what? What's the last part of the gospel that we hear here? What's the last part that is acted out for us every Sunday in the Lord's Supper? What does Jesus instruct them to do now in response? Notice, the disciples have been completely passive this whole time, this whole meal. They're you know, having a grand old time, enjoying dinner. Meanwhile, Jesus is doing all the action. He took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it. But friends, all of that means nothing without what? Verse 22, what does he tell him? He said, take, take, this is my body, receive. The Greek word is labate, receive. You've got to receive it, friends. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. Jesus has done everything that is essential that is difficult, that is required for your salvation. Jesus, think of any analogy you want. Jesus has wired the whole church with electricity, but it does you no good. You're still sitting there in the dark unless you flip the light switch. You are sitting on an eternal winning lottery ticket this morning. Life in heaven with God. But it's of absolutely no value to you if you don't cash it in. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a gift. What a gift. But friends, it does you absolutely no good in the box. Wrapped up. You've got to receive it. You've got to open it.
finally, in verses 23 and 24, Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Hebrews 9 reminds us that not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness of sins. And for 1,500 years of the Old Testament, every priest stood daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same old sacrifices which could never take away sins. But when Christ appeared, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, which can never purify eternally, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing for us an eternal redemption. And therefore, he is the mediator now of a new covenant in his blood, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. This meal, the Lord's Supper, reminds us of the infinite price that Jesus paid to purchase that unbelievable new covenant, eternal life with God for you. His precious blood for our eternal redemption. But friends, who's it for? Those who are called. It's not for everyone. Hebrews 9, it's, it's for those who are called. Jesus himself said in verse 24 of our chapter, my blood is poured out for many. It's not for all. It's for many. And we're reminded at this table, as we're reminded at this table, of what Christ has done for us, that he's poured out his blood, his life, literally for us. There is a question put before us this morning. Will we in response, in faith, take up our crosses, deny ourselves daily, and give our lives back to him, even if only figuratively? Will we give them back to him? Will we lose our lives in order to truly find them in him? John 6, 53 to 55 says this, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. That's what this meal symbolizes. There's nothing magic about this. You can come to church your entire life. You can eat all the crackers and grape juice you want. Jesus is talking about a heart thing in this passage. Have you fed on him spiritually? Have you taken his body, his blood? Have you received his free gift of grace in faith spiritually? That's what he's talking about in John 6. And lastly, number 6, lastly, the Lord's Supper is a prefiguring of glory. 
This is a precept of God. It is a picture of grace. And this meal is a prefiguring of glory. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Paul makes this point even more explicit in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says this. This is so beautiful. Jesus left his meal, left this meal to be observed by his church as a continual ordinance until when? As often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again, until he comes back. Church, this is not a permanent ordinance. We're not going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper in glory. This meal is temporary. It is meant to foreshadow a much grander, more perfect, beautiful meal. One day this meal will be replaced because one day, We will no longer need to be reminded of the Lamb. We will see Him face to face. We will worship Him face to face. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And every voice will cry out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing. We will worship the Lamb face to face. He's coming back for his church. Do we believe that? He's coming back for his church. I know it's been 2,000 years. He said, don't fall asleep. Stay awake. Be ready. Come like a thief in the night. And on that day, we who are his bride will celebrate with him the great wedding feast of the Lamb that will totally eclipse and blow out of the water every other meal, every other party you've ever been a part of in your life. Just listen to how that heavenly banquet table is described throughout Scripture. Isaiah 25. The Lord of hosts. This is, again, 800 years before Jesus is even born. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Jesus himself says of that day in Matthew 8, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. It's going to be beautiful. Your your loved ones who have gone on to glory before you. And most beautiful of all, Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult, and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. How does it end? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I end with one last invitation this morning, friends. Have you been invited?
to that party? Have you been invited? Let me clarify. You have been invited. You're invited this morning. You've heard the gospel this morning. Whether this is the first time you've ever heard the good news of Jesus and what he's done for you, or the thousandth time, you, you are being invited this morning to the wedding banquet of the Lamb. And in a moment, we'll have a chance to visibly respond to that and remember that grace and reenact that gospel as we eat together. But I want you to remember there's an offer for you on the table this morning, an invitation this morning. Not literally, not the crackers and juice, a spiritual, eternal invitation. Will you receive it? Receive it. Let's pray.